All right. Well, we are into the final episode of this Redeemed Humanity uh, project, or at least the final episode of stuff that I've prepared. Maybe we can do a question and answer section or something like that later on. But these are the last two passages, and I've lumped them together because they're similar. It's Titus 1 and 1 Timothy 3, and it's basically giving some exhortations about leadership in the church. So we'll see how those are very similar and work together and why we're going to tackle them basically as one unit. It's, it's essentially Paul saying the same thing in two different places. But before we get into that, let's just take a quick high-level view of where we've come from. Because we started by realizing, man, this whole egalitarian and complementarian language, it's not really helpful because it doesn't give an accurate picture of a narrative. It actually is more trying to do some systematic theology stuff of the Bible that is not actually being done in the Bible itself because the Bible is telling the story of a curse on the sexes, of humanity's curse from the fall of sin in Genesis 3 and how Jesus actually redeems that, how he is all the time undoing that curse. So we saw how that story plays from beginning to the very end of the Bible. And now we're going through and we're looking at the sections of scripture that sound like they contradict that. But hopefully you've seen in every single place, this is actually Paul trying to be wise in instructing a church that is on a different level when it comes to women's rights, when it comes to women having a seat at the table. He's trying to be as wise as he can in allowing that to continue without totally breaking social categories because he doesn't want the church to become this rebellious institution. He actually wants it to thrive in a way that's counterculture and lets the gospel be the first and foremost beautiful thing and then enter people in to the church life as they come. Hopefully you've started to see how that has worked. And so when we get into these last two passages, we're going to continue to see that. Let's open our Bibles to Titus 1 and maybe grab a second Bible, open it to 1 Timothy 3. Take some time, read through those, and, and then we'll come back. As I've said, I'm throwing these final two passages of Scripture together because they work really similarly. Both are pointed to by complementarians as a reason that the role of elder in the church should be reserved strictly for men. And the primary reason that they're pointing to it at that interpretation is the gendered language that Paul is using in these sections. He says things like, an elder must be, quote-unquote, faithful to his wife and a man whose children believe, and he must not be a recent convert, and so on. So, having worked through all the other passages, let's get into the exegetical work here, and it's going to become really rapidly clear what's going on. Paul is, once again, just addressing the actual people in their actual context. As we've already seen, Paul has temporarily put on breaks for women leaders in the churches he oversees, not because of their gender, but because of the cultural challenges that women must first overcome to be considered ready and qualified. So just quick recap, women in the first century um, in Rome and in Judaism, they would not have had access to biblical education 
or Greco-Roman philosophical schooling. So these women, they were scarcely given leadership roles, not just in the church, but just anywhere at all. So for Paul, though he clearly sees women as equally gifted by the Spirit, and he has no sort of gender-based barrier for them to engage in any aspect of the church life, he would not yet be addressing women as overseers in his letters because there just wouldn't be any to address. So we know that this is correct based on the nature of his arguments in these sections. You'll notice in neither passage does Paul make any gender-based theological argument whatsoever. Paul actually does not turn to Genesis or make any claim that a man is more fit for leadership in the church. So what is he actually arguing in these sections? Well, as you'll look in both passages, Paul is making a case for the character of a church leader. We know that this is the case because in both sections, he illustrates two kinds of people. One, whose character is fitted for leadership in the church, and then that's versus the other kind of characteristics that should probably disqualify someone from church leadership. We again know that this is the correct interpretation because the logical turning phrases and and the words that he's using to make his argument. So, for instance, take a look at Titus 1, um, verses 6 through 9. It describes the character of a godly leader. Then verse 10 is this hinge word, for. So he's moving from verses 6 through 9 to then describe the context surrounding the church in Crete and the reason that he's making sure that the church leaders in Crete are upright of character for elders because their surrounding church is full of people who lack godly character. And so if they were put in positions of power, they would totally lead the church astray. So that same idea is true of 1 Timothy, only he uses a different structure. The Titus passage is set up as two pictures of contrasting people set next to one another. But in 1 Timothy, Paul uses a different strategy of giving the why or the reason he requires these characters of his leaders. He goes like this, a leader must engage his home well. Why? Because If they can't manage their home, how can they be trusted to manage the church? They shouldn't be a recent convert. Why? Because otherwise they'll become conceited. So in the Titus passage, he's giving a contrasting picture saying, this is the kind of person you want leading the church, not this kind of person. And then in 1 Timothy, he's saying, this is the kind of person we want leading the church. Why? Because if they're not this kind of person, here's what might fall out. Paul's point in both passages is clearly focused on the character of leaders, not their gender. His aim is to guide Timothy and Titus who were overseeing these specific churches and appointing leaders who are full of godly character and contrast the ungodly characteristics of the culture around them in such a way that Christ would be seen as good and worthy of praise because of the church's upstanding reputation. He's addressing men specifically because men were the only ones holding leadership roles in society and specifically only holding leadership roles in the church at this time because Paul, again, is allowing women that time to systemically catch up.
We don't have to look very far to find the theology that's motivating Paul in these instructions. In Titus, he opens the letter with it. He says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness in the hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, has promised before the beginning of time. And he closes chapter 1 of 1 Timothy 3 in a similar way. He says, Know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the foundation of truth. Beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. It's this, that Jesus appeared in the flesh was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed in the world, and was taken up in glory. So in both cases, the godliness of church leaders is to be driven by the truth, by faith, and by a hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ, a gospel that was promised by God from the beginning of time and that now takes residence in the heart of the believer by the Spirit, which produces godliness. So for Paul, having one's hope set on the truth, which is the gospel that he just beautifully penned in 1 Timothy 3, Having their hope set on that truth and resting in the promise of eternal life leads to a spring of godliness. This is a critical theological posture. It it is often believed that the gospel is what saves a person and then that person moves away from the gospel and then into a life of just behavior correction. But for Paul, that is not the case. For Paul, the truth of the gospel and the hope it produces by the power of the Spirit is what saves and what sanctifies. And it makes sense. If our hope is truly set on the resurrection of Jesus, our lives will be oriented from one that's defined by our mortal strivings, and then it's it's aimed from that mortality towards the eternal glory of Jesus. Apart from a hope in the truth of the gospel, immorality is the only result because There's no sense of eternal consequence or or eternal glory or just simply an eternality of the soul of our neighbors whom we're called to love. So we mistreat them. We take moral shortcuts and we live for just mundane pleasures. But with our eyes set on the glory of Jesus, we're humbled by holiness into reverent obedience that is driven by the Holy Spirit to work in building his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven and pleased to see our Father's name made famous because of the holiness of the church. This interpretation, it's really vital for the church and for the elder and the pastor. The instruction that practically comes out of this theology is never stop preaching the gospel. Do you want to see the salvific work of Christ in your church? Do you want to see people come to saving faith? Preach the gospel. Do you want to see your church spring up with an abundance of godliness? Preach the gospel. You don't just need Jesus to save you from the wages of sin. You need him every day in every breath, and you need him to raise you up into eternal life. Or as Jesus said it himself, 
Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and to know Jesus, the one you sent. That's John 17, 3. So then what's the application? It's back to the basics. Turn back to the gospel in humble prayer. Turn back to scripture and ask the Spirit to spring up hope and knowledge of the truth that you might know the Father's love for you and so live to his glory. Do you want to be a leader in the church? That's good, but it takes a godly person and godliness is produced in those who love and long for Jesus alone. Well, you've done it. (laughs) We've done it together. That is the six passages that seem to disagree with the redeemed humanity viewpoint. And I'll let you be the decider of what you are thinking now with this. But again, I always encourage you to take the time to be humble, to go pray to the Lord, spend time going back, reviewing all of this, re-listening to these episodes, if that's helpful. But here is my conclusion. My conclusion is this, that complementarianism and egalitarianism are both built on a foundation of insufficient Bible study. Both viewpoints are actually just part truths that point us to a greater biblically-based viewpoint. This is that viewpoint, that women and men are designed to bear God's image uniquely from but toward one another in a way that is complementary. Women and men are inherently designed by God in such a way that they couldn't image him apart from one another or in a context in which one of the sexes is sidelined and the other is elevated. But that's exactly what happened in the fall of Genesis 3. So praise be to God that he didn't leave us in a cursed state of sexual dysfunction and its resulting inequality, but that he dealt with the curse of sin himself through Jesus's incarnation, his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. So now, because of the sexual oneness of humanity that has been redeemed through Jesus, the church should not recognize the merit of any spiritual gift or church role as having its basis in one sex. There lies no difference in spiritual gifting, nor is there any universally scriptural instruction to distinguish gifts and roles based on one's sex. Both sexes are created and gifted equally and equally clothed with Christ. That is the redeemed humanity viewpoint on the sexes in the Bible. One thing that we notice are there are actually consistent themes that are undergirding Paul's thoughts and arguments in each of these sections. Ironically, every section is embedded in a theology of freedom in Christ that results in equal standing for all people in the church regardless of their social standing, their ethnic background, or their sex. But Paul realizes that practicing that theology is going to result in inevitable culture clashes because that equality for people, it doesn't exist in the society outside of the church. So in these sections of scripture, Paul is helping the church navigate those culture clashes and deal with them in a way that is wise and prophetic. 
In some places, like 1 Timothy, Paul seems to direct the church to be countercultural, such that their holiness will direct people's attention towards Jesus. There, he would ask the women not to dress ornately, like those in the Ephesian culture are, and help the church not to feed into the underlying belief that a woman's worth comes from their physical appearance. But in other places, like 1 Corinthians 11, Paul seems to direct the church to be culturally appropriate and stick with the cultural customs that they're living in to avoid offending people and bring public disgrace upon themselves. He actually advises the women to have long hair because it's like an adornment for them as the glory of mankind, a public display of their glorious status that they received in Genesis 2, now having been redeemed in Christ. So clearly, when we take this broad look, a more thorough exegetical work of these passages uncovers a very different interpretation than a surface-level reading suggests. In fact, every single passage highlights women's equality in the Lord while giving wise counsel when it comes to engaging in extra-church culture of their time. This narrative framework and exegetical response, it's so beneficial for the modern pastor because it moves us from having to preach a message that is theologically lacking or impossible to sufficiently and practically apply and exegetically unstable to a gospel-centered theology of freedom and identity found in Christ that encourages a local community to just actually wrestle with what it means to love our neighbors and to point to Jesus in a way that is theologically provocative, but not socially anarchical. So in all this, I hope that this project begins opening doors for the Spirit of God to do a mighty work in the church, that he would begin repairing broken relationships, healing traumas, and giving redemption to the sexes as we all grow together in Christ-likeness. I hope that the heart behind this study will inspire more lay people and pastors alike to dig deep exegetically where they feel tension or feel like curses are being brought to bear upon the church, that we might actually find those hidden blessings of God's truth for us. And one final note, my aim in this project has been simply to see what the Bible says about the sexes when complementarian sounding passages are sufficiently exegeted. But I know that there are other arguments surrounding this topic that I just haven't addressed because they're outside the scope of my project. So for instance, one of those arguments is complementarianism is the traditional and historical interpretation of these passages, so it's probably the right one. And my thesis, it's not going to address this argument, but I am surrounded and inspired by many who have set out to bless the church by uncovering those arguments and doing the work behind them. So for a rebuttal and an accurate historical look at the development of complementarianism in the church, I again am going to suggest Beth Allison Barr's The Making of Biblical Womanhood. So if you're listening and you still have arguments or questions left unanswered, I encourage you to dive into that source or a list of other sources that I have compiled. And if you're interested in what those sources are, I've been actually either alluding to them or quoting them 
throughout, but I do have a bibliography that I would love to supply you. So please feel free to give me an email or a call and I will give you that source list. I'd be so happy to do that. With all that, I also want to extend a huge thank you to all those who have contributed to this project both directly and secondarily. There there are so many conversations that I remember that just sparked a little thought and I thought, wait a second, what if that's right? And then I chased it down. So thank you for just engaging in these conversations with me. They've been so beneficial. Well, that's all I got. That's the whole project. We made it through. Thank you for listening and participating. It's been such a blessing for me. I hope it's at least been a wrestle for you that has gotten you into scripture, that has brought you to your knees in prayer in the same way that it has for me. That in and of itself, whether you agree with me or not, is worth your time. So thank you for spending it here with me. And I hope that if you have questions, you can feel free to email those to me. hflorum at gmail.com would be an easy email to send those to. And otherwise, I, I hope that we get to speak soon. And I hope that the peace and blessing of the Lord goes with you um, to 